Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing a very important topic because this is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, We're going to talk today about the role of the nephrologist in kidney care. And today, we have Dr. Michael Krause. He's Associate Chief Medical Officer for for Cineas Medical Care. And he is a leader in uh, the field of short daily home hemodialysis. So welcome to the show, Dr. Krause. Thanks for having me, Laurie. It's a pleasure to be here. What attracted you to the field of nephrology? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I, when I, was, I was thinking about this the other day because I had to give a nice talk uh, to, to our new uh, administrator people that are learning about home dialysis and why dialysis and why nephrology. And, and, you know, I always grew up thinking I wanted to be a doctor. I was that strange kid that did like, knew what I wanted. I have no idea why, but that's what I wanted. Then, you know, in my teenage years, my mother actually got really, really sick from lupus and uh, actually got lupus nephritis, which I had no idea what it was, obviously, at the, I was probably 12 years old. Uh, but she was one of the first patients that was fortunate enough to get treated with cytoxin and steroids that literally saved her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very interested in, in, in you know, the physicians that were up front and, and between the Mayo Clinic and Rush Clinic, where Rush Presbyterian, where she went to Chicago, I got most of her care the room, between the rheumatologist and the nephrologist. was very exciting. Uh, and leaned me at that time a little bit towards rheumatology. Uh, and then as I'm thinking, gee, what kind of doctor I want to be? Well, I could imagine myself sitting in, in a country location taking chickens for payment, and I found out CMS won't let you do that anymore. Uh, and, and I really wanted to, I liked the, the call of academics that I learned during my residency. And the nephrology was that, that field that really lets you take care of patients for long periods of time. It wasn't just taking care of a cardiac cath or something. It was actually taking care of patients, watching them through the beginning, the illness all the way through their illness, hopefully getting them to transplant and even following them after transplant. So I found it was a very good way to connect with a lot of patients and take care of patients for a long period of time. Well, you know, it's so true. I mean, I, I've had my nephrologist 30 years. We've we've literally grown up together. I mean, you know, he's gotten married, I got married. You know, it's just hysterical. It's yes. it's you feel like you know um your your doctor and and I often tell patients that, you know, this is going to be a long-term relationship. Make sure you get the relationship right with your with your kidney doc. Oh, um, that's absolutely right. Somebody you can trust and somebody you can rely on. Yep. And, and, and more like family. Exactly. And that's what I liked about nephrology. It was, it's just a lot, it should be more like family. It's engaging for all of us. It really is. And, um, you know, I think people kind of, you know, take that for granted. You know, I hear my my friends like cry, like, oh, my doctor's retiring. <laughs> and yeah. uh, they're so distraught because they have to find a new doctor. So, exactly. um, you know, I'm curious because I think a lot of people don't know about the extra training that it takes to be a nephrologist. So uh, just tell us like what med school, you know, how many years and then what it takes to be a kidney doc. So, yeah, sure. So in this country, uh, in the United States, uh, you you, you go through regular college like you normally would. So you've got to get an undergraduate degree, get into medical school. Medical school is four years. 
after medical school, you have an internship and a residency. And if you want to do nephrology, you go into the internal medicine field. So you do a three-year residency program for internal medicine. After mm-hmm. that, you apply for fellowship programs. And then a real fellowship is generally two to three years. If you want to do transplant, that's an additional year on top of that in most cases today. So you're talking about 10 years of school. At least, yes. And and I, I, I don't even want to ask what the, uh, you know, people going to school today, what the loans are. Uh, one of my friends just became a vet, and her her loan is $200,000 <laughs> that she has to pay back that, you know, becoming a vet. So uh, we won't go there, but it's a lot of money to become a doctor, I imagine. It, it, it is today. Fortunately, as you know, I'm really old, so it would cost <laughs> me a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, um, you know, fifty is the new thirty. Just to let you know, <laughs> what's sixty? <laughs> we'll just say sixty is the new forty. Okay, there I mean, you go. Hey, let's just just to carry on with that theme. Um, so, you know, what stages of kidney disease do you primarily care for? Because um, is that happen with most specialists? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the transplant nephrologist because I think patients get that confused. So yeah, uh, an interesting thing, and in nephrology, the, you know, there's all sorts out there. So you want to look for somebody that meets your needs as a patient. I like taking care of patients, so I, you know, I took care of everybody, whether very early in kidney disease, maybe stage two with a little proteinuria, and even early diabetic. It really depends on the relationship you have with your referring physicians. But obviously, most of the care is for later. So, uh, three people. For stage three patients who are at risk and maybe have some proteinuria and hypertension, four and five need, in my opinion, need very close follow-up. So my, my later stages, I would see almost on a monthly basis for mo- many of them. And then I obviously cared for a lot of ESRD patients. I also was uh, a transplant nephrologist for a number of years when we were a little short at Indiana University. Uh, so I'm very comfortable with that. Transplant nephrologists can do both, right? They can do some CKD and transplant. Most do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they specialize in taking those patients who who have been transplanted, which I think is essential because it's it requires really good primary care, which transplant nephrologists are good at, and it requires knowledge of immunosuppression, which is better than most, uh, and almost an infectious disease career as well. So, it, uh, being a transplant nephrologist is an admirable career as well. Well, you know, it's so interesting because a lot of my friends who are transplanted is, you know, they come up with infections more than anything because the immunosuppressant meds and, and uh, my transplant nephrologist is like on top of it of every single antibiotic to treat any type of strain. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a different level of knowledge you need to know. So Absolutely. Um, you have to keep right up on top of that one. Exactly. Because exactly, there's innovations happening and we got to take, uh, take advantage of it. And a common question that we get from patients is, oh, that medication I'm taking for my transplant, I don't like it because it makes me, it doesn't make me, you know, it makes me nauseous or whatever. I'm like, call your doctor. He'll prescribe another one for you. Don't, don't continue that because you're not going to want to take the meds. And, uh, and that's essential. You take your meds with your transplant, as you know. That's exactly right. That's <laughs> the beauty of, of today's world. We have a lot more immunosuppressants. Exactly. Started, we, we actually didn't have much at all. Uh, so, so having the different types of immunosuppressants and different immunosuppressants available should make it better, but it means talking to your nephrologist, your transplant nephrologist, as you said. Exactly. We could tell about the olden days. I had to take so many steroids that I looked like a balloon on a string and would eat a shoe if it was put in front of me. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was the only thing you had, that and Imuran. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we've come a long way. So, you know, what 
what is a typical day like for a, a, a nephrologist? I mean, I think people don't understand all their responsibilities. It, that's an excellent question. It does vary somewhat to whether you're in a large group or you're in a solo practice, right? But you have the same responsibilities every day, but they vary, right? So you've got a, a group of patients in the hospital. You have to round on them and see them and new patients coming in, which take a significant amount of time to make sure they're getting the best care possible. At the same time, you're scheduling a clinic, usually for chronic kidney disease patients. And at the same time, you've got to figure out how to get in rounding with your ESRD population. The average nephrologist will carry somewhere around 60 to 70 ESRD patients, meaning patients on dialysis. Some will care for more, uh, but 60 to 70 is about average now. And they have also, we have what's called physician extenders now. So right. uh, nurse practitioners and stuff like that to help the nephrologist because there is a nephrologist shortage. If anybody's listening right now and you have a niece or a nephew or a grandson or a brother or sister or whatever, go into med school, tell them to, to choose nephrology. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. There, there's clearly shortages in all our, our, our people. So I need nurses. I need uh, nephrologists. And, and we need to make sure that we engage them and we, we show them the value. And, the, and frankly, in, in my opinion, the, the fun of being a nephrologist, it really is a rewarding career. Well, and then oftentimes, you know, in the dialysis unit, a patient will be seeing a nephrologist, but then a med- medical director is another nephrologist. Right. What What is that relationship? So if I'm seeing my pa- my doctor that rounds in, um, in a dialysis clinic, uh, does the medical director just oversee the care? How do... How to, how to, how does the patient um, interact with the medical director? So, so that's, a, that's a good question. In general, patients don't need to interact with the medical director unless they care to. Medical director is responsible for virtually the running of a, of a dialysis unit and ensuring the quality. Their number one goal is ensuring high-quality care within the dialysis unit. So they'll oversee, to some extent, everybody's care, meaning they want to make sure the dialysis unit is providing the best care possible but they're not responsible for the individual care of the individual patient. That is dependent on your nephrologist, right? Your kidney doctors, when it's calling the shots, prescribing your therapy. If there are concerns or we think something might be done better as a medical director, certainly they pick up the phone all the time and and call and say, hey, Mike, uh, I'm just looking over the stuff on Lori. What do you think about this? Uh, and, And they'll you know, the collegial conversations, collaboration go on all the time. But at the end of the day, as a patient, your, your kidney doctor is responsible for all of those things. And they may or may not, as you said, use advanced uh, practice providers like nurse practitioners or even physician assistants. Uh, and how they round on you depends on each of the practices. So you, you may see a combination of both. But it's that nurse practitioner or physician assistant works for your nephrologist, not for the not for the dialysis unit, not for the medical director. Well, and, you know, I'm a big believer in continuity of care. So I always tell, you know, my members of RSN and, you know, look, you know, try to make a point with the same doctor or, you know, make sure that you're communicating with your main doctor. <laughs> so he knows what's going on with you. And, and a point in case is, uh, you know, I've had to go to the emergency room. I always call my nephrologist saying, hey, I got to go to the emergency room. And, you know, so he's alerted to either have a partner come in or something to make sure that, you know, none of the other doctors are 
you know, doing anything that would be counterproductive to my care. Um, and that happened once to my mom. Um, she was in emergency and a, uh, luckily I got a nephrologist in there, uh, but they were going to prescribe an antibiotic that I didn't think was so great with her for her kidney function. And um, I said, wait, I don't like that antibiotic. Can you get the nephrologist in here and get a more friendly drug? So it's it's nephrologists are the smartest doctors. I, I just, just need to say that. And, and I appreciate that. But at the end of the day, to keep all of us healthy and doing well, uh, especially with kidney disease, it is a team. So I, I can't underestimate how important your nurse and your social worker, dietitian right. are, as well as your, your nephrologist team. And then it's always about communication and collaboration. It if is. I went into the hospital, not only do I want to tell my doctor when I'm going in, but I want to call him when I'm coming out, right? And I right. want to get seen and I want to say, what caused me to go in the hospital? Are my medicines right? Did I pick up my antibiotics? Am I taking them right? And making sure that my physician understands. And as somebody that would round in the hospital on somebody else's patients, which I did because I was an academic center, I would always call the referring nephrologist for changes because he's go- he or she's going to get asked if something happens to the patient. And I'm also going to call them, obviously, on discharge and make sure that they're comfortable with what we've done in the hospital and they understand the changes that were made. Well, and it's so important um, because, you know, we've heard cases over and over in the community. The patient is discharged from the hospital and, you know, the the nephrologist isn't told. And he he actually is like, well, I didn't really want the patient discharged. (laughs) I've heard that before. And so it's really important to uh, communicate um, with your team. Be a parrot. Say it over and over again. That's what I say. You can't can't educate people enough. So I want to talk a little bit about, I love to ask this question, Dr. Krauss, you know, um, you know, if you had to choose a dialysis treatment, and I think I have a crystal ball, I know what you would choose. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think this is an important question to every healthcare professional should ask themselves, because um, it's not an easy choice sometimes when you're in that situation. So which dialysis treatment would you choose if you had to? Well, well, obviously, and as you are quite aware, I would choose preemptive transplantation to dialysis at all costs if I could. Right. Meaning I would try to get transplanted without dialysis. And if I'm on dialysis and I'm medically eligible, Mm-hmm. I believe that that's the best care for most of my patients. So transplantation is always first and foremost. With that caveat that for whatever reason I couldn't get transplanted, what would I do? Or you had to it's wait. Changed. Or you had to wait. Right, or I had to wait, exactly. So, so, you know, it's changed over time. There was a time in my life I thought PD would be my first and only choice. But, uh, you know, as I've progressed and I've taken care of more and more patients and over the last 20 years seen the advantages of more frequent dialysis be able to perform at home. So I, I don't use the term short daily anymore. I, I know that was in the introduction, but it, it, it is daily dialysis. And in my mind, to treat you know what's, what's causing the patient the most problem in salt and water, it's frequency that matters. It takes all the pressure off the heart, which is the number one, as you know, the number one cause of hospitalization and death in our patients. So if, if it were me, there's no question. I would do home dialysis and I would do it five or six days a week. And if I was really brave, I might do it at night, but I'd start at five or six days. Well, and, you know, just so people who may be listening, um, can you explain the difference between CAPD and hemodialysis? Because yeah, I, well, I, sure. I preferred CAPD. I, I was on 
CAPD or no peritoneal for nine years in the cycler and then home hemo for a year and uh, PD would be my preferred choice of dialysis treatments. Um, maybe explain a little bit um, about sure. the difference. Yeah, so, so PD or peritoneal dialysis is bloodless, which is one of the big benefits of it. Yes. So there's no needles, there's anything like that. And if you do CAPD, which are manual exchanges, uh, what you do is you run sugar water in your belly. It sits in, in the what we call the peritoneal cavity, which is the lining outside of your intestines, your liver, but inside your body. Uh, and if it sits for two to four hours, you move a lot of salt and water, you move a lot of poisons, and then you dump that out and you pour another half gallon in. And you do that three or four times a day. If you do it by hand, that's called CAPD or continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis or easier. It's just manual, meaning right. by and hand. It's all, done by, it's all done by gravity. That's all gravity and simple. The beauty of that one is it doesn't require electricity, doesn't require running water. If a hurricane's coming and you got to get the heck out of town, you throw the bunch of bags in your trunk and you take off and you're going to be fine. Right. You get to someplace safe, you can call you know, your provider and they'll deliver bags to wherever you are. You don't even need electricity. So that's beautiful. The APD, which is what you did, is automa- automated peritoneal dialysis uses a machine, a, a, a cycler. So the, the nice thing about the cycler is you can do, instead of doing three exchanges or four exchanges during the day, you do two or three or four exchanges at night while you sleep. I prefer to also do exchanges during the day with the psych, with machine, mm-hmm. but it, you can do it either way. So it's a machine that puts that sugar water in your belly. Uh, what you want to do when you think about it and you want to move salt and water and poisons better, you'd like to keep that sugar water in your belly about two hours each time. So you want to look at your prescription and understand those things. But those are things you can discuss with your nephrologist. But that's what peritoneal dialysis. No needles, nice and simple. Without a machine, you don't need electricity. With the machine, you need electricity, but you don't need running water. When you move to home hemodialysis, in today's world, there's, there's a couple devices that are, the three devices that are available. One of them's portable, when two of them are not. I, I find a portable device makes sense to me because I like the ability to leave and move, or, or if I want to go visit my grandkids for four days, a long weekend, I want to be able to do, take my dialysis with me and not try to figure out how I'm going to get to and from places. Uh, it just makes things a little bit easier. But hemodialysis does require access to your blood. So either you have underneath your skin an artery tied to a vein, either directly or with a piece of straw called Gore-Tex, which is a a graft, and then you you cannulate or place needles into that. Every time you dialyze, it takes two needles. Some patients use a catheter that sits outside of their chest, but tunnels under the skin, goes into the big jugular vein in your neck, and sits down by your heart. It's convenient because there's no needles. It's inconvenient because there's an increased risk of infection. So we prefer the the ones in your arms and under the skin. But you do that. And in the case of dialysis in center, it's usually three times a week. At home, you can do it three times a week. Or you can do it more. I prefer more because it's better for the heart. And lots of studies showing higher quality of life, better sleep, better response to the heart with more frequent dialysis. And we could go on for a whole nother talk on that one. That could be a whole talk, but I'm assuming you changed your mind about PD to home hemo because you see the the clearances in in the labs on patients, right? Is that from a doctor's standpoint, that's... From that and more importantly, the quality of life. You know, PD early on when I've got a good residual renal function, the quality of life is, is good. As that residual renal function declines, it, it, 
just, you know, patients don't do quite as much. Yes, they survive. You, you take somebody that's on PD, that, that it's time, and you switch them to home hemodialysis, they wake up in that first week and they, they actually say, I feel great, and, and they would continue it. The same thing as you move people from in-center to home. Just by giving that, the virtue of the ability to do that frequency makes them feel so much better, and, and that, will, that is what will influence my opinion. Right, exactly. Well, and you know, it was interesting. I was on PD for nine years and people like, and I'm a short female, so I am the right. ideal candidate for PD, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you're a 220 pound man, it's PD is not going to work for you like it worked for me. Is that a correct statement? You will probably have limitations if you're larger, especially when your kidney function starts to decrease. You just won't feel as well. It, but, it, it, we can make it work for almost anybody, but when I when I look at the response of the people and what they're able to do and what they want to do and how happy they are, I, I found he, home hemo fit the bill better, in my opinion. Exactly. Well, um, you know, uh, it's important for all patients to ask their doctor about all options. And in reality, uh, some nephrologists are more comfortable with different treatments than other treatments. So you have to be your own advocate. Is that is that a fair statement? I think it, even in today's world, there are there is a wide variety in, in people who've had exposure to different home therapies. Uh, people who, frankly, even had exposure to transplants. So you want to talk to your doctor about those things. Uh, certainly part of my job in today's world is help doctors feel more comfortable with home therapies, both PD and home hemo. And I think we're being successful, but there still are places where you just want to talk and you want to make sure. It is not a difficult adjustment for a physician to begin to understand home hemo, mm -hmm. but he or she may need some, some further education. But it's a discussion you should have. If you're interested in home therapies, ask your physician about it and ask him the best place to get it. Exactly. Well, we have um, we have frequent support groups, and it's always a big topic, and always the person who's on home hemo becomes, or PD, becomes an advocate. Oh, my God, I was in center, and I can't believe I'm home now, and I love it, and yada, yada, yada. So um, it's definitely a, 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 a benefit for patients to choose that option. Yeah, and patients should know that they have that option at all times. Sometimes, in fact, about two-thirds of our in-center patients, when asked, don't realize they continue to have an option. Right. But even if you're in center, you have the option to go home. In fact, it's something you should look into and think about on a regular basis. It may not be right for you today for any reason. You know, that's the beauty of in center. We need it. It's a great therapy. It's provided well. We do a good job. But as your life changes and as your quality of life changes, you may find that home may become more attractive over time. Definitely. So what do you need from your patients and their family members to help them have a good outcome as a nephrologist? What are I your top three? It, top three. Yeah, well, I know there's a lot, but... There, yeah, there always is, but you, you hit number one is advocate, right? So as a patient or a family member, advocate for yourself or your, your loved one, right? Pay attention to what's going on. Second is educate and empower yourself, right? We... we sometimes get confused that empowering a patient means just asking what they want to do. But I can't ask you until I educate you. Right. Uh, so, so you have to understand basically everything I do, and it's my job to teach at a level that you understand. And then the third is, uh, is, is a combination of motivation and support. A motivated patient can accomplish miracles 
with a little home support, they can get even much more done. So, you know, it's, it's difficult for me to know in advance who's going to succeed, but if you're motivated with a little bit of support, we're going to go a lot further. Well, and you know how I impress doctors, uh, especially first doctors, you know, when I have to go see a new doctor. And I always have a one-page type sheet of my history. And then I, right. have a, I have a printout of my meds that, you know, there's a little fancy system where it prints it out and the doses. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, you, you can see the smile on their face. They're like, oh, my God, you know. And, and what, it, it, what it tells the doctor, and, and it's not just for nephrologists. It's if I see another specialist. It, it lets them know that I'm here to do business. And, right. and, 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 it, and it's really, really important when you get those sheets from your doctor that you look them over. A lot of us have this, uh, we get the sheet and we say, yeah, I know what's on there, and, and we don't look at it. But that sheet is what's used to communicate to other physicians. And, and as you said, it's a great sheet to introduce yourself to a new doctor. So make sure when you're given something that it is accurate and make sure your medicines are updated where they're supposed to be. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, it's so important. And, and uh, I, I love to learn about topics. I don't go to Dr. Google as much. Dr. Google's not all that reliable, I found. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you, can get, you, can, you can have some nightmares uh, Googling your d- diagnosis at night. And um, for yep. those who have kidney disease, there might be a tea you can drink and you'll be cured for some money. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can find all sorts of information and working with you, because know, there are good things on there as well. So working yes. with your physician, if you have a question, don't be shy to bring that up to your physician and discuss it. But if it sounds too good to be true, just like my mother taught me when I was a very young boy, it's too good to be true. And exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you know, what questions do you wish more patients would ask you? That's an excellent question. You know, you know I... It's just, what is it that I can do to feel my best? You know, it's more, you know, it's, it's more of a question that follows mine. I, I always say, what is it? What are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? And then you should say, how do we get there? What teamwork is needed and how do we get there? What therapies, et cetera. But it, it's important, I think, as a patient to think about yourself as healthy as you can be and to think about what you want to accomplish in life. Because, you know, life is precious, uh, and certainly as a dialysis patient, it can be hard. So you want, you want to be up on top. And so you want to think about what you want to accomplish, and then you want to ask your doctor, how do we get there? Well, and, you know, I, th- I think that's an excellent point, but I also want to bring in, you know, depression is so rampant. Patients need to really understand the signs of being depressed and to get help. Because, uh, you know, if I'm depressed and somebody asks me that question, I'm going to say, I don't know. And I think, you know, we need to just, you know, it's so, it's so great that as a society, we're understanding mental health better. But if your mental health isn't right, it's really hard to envision if you're going to have a future. <laughs> um, no, that's exactly right. And it's our job to identify that. And fortunately, CMS is pushing in in a number of their new ways that we look at dialysis to run what we call a depression screen called the PHQ-9, which is just simply a questionnaire, which will heighten my ability to understand if you do have depression uh, and then hopefully help you treat it. But you're absolutely right. If you're depressed, sometimes you don't realize it. That's why it's important to talk to your loved ones, your family, and and it's important to be quite open and honest with your doctor. Because, you know, 
Some of us don't get a lot of time with the doctor, maybe five to seven minutes. Expressing all your needs is difficult in that short amount of time. But depression, if we can't control it, you can't take care of yourself. Well, and it is, you know, what I always ask patients or, you know, my peers, hey, you have anything you're looking forward to? Right. And if they say nothing, I'm like, oh, they, you know, I mean, you know, I can rattle off a million things a lot of times. So, exactly. um, um, yeah, it's really important. And uh, for those of you who may not be feeling well, um, you know, uh, I have to tell you the benefits of support groups. Just come and listen and hear other stories and just know you're not alone. Because a lot of times, you know, as you know, when we are diagnosed with a serious illness, you find out who your friends are. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, that can come with some, you know, emotional challenges because, you know, you're got to do dialysis and your friends don't understand. And so you got to go meet other people that are going through what you're going through. It is always very good to have a peer support group and you can work with your social worker to do it. Uh, obviously, you know, one thing I loved about home dialysis, honestly, is I would make sure the same patients came to clinic at the same time same point each month because I usually saw them once a month. So, you know, if two patients got along and, and were similar, they, their clinic appointments were scheduled about the same time, uh, which was convenient for me because they'd sit in the lobby and talk and have a great time and I'd be a half hour late and nobody would complain. Uh, but it also allowed them to have that peer, right? And then they'd go to lunch after clinic or they'd even meet for dinner occasionally in between and they talk all the time. So just establishing some of that, whether it's in center or home, find somebody that, that looks, tastes, and smells like you and, you know, You're develop so, a friendship. You know what it is? You are so right on. People are like, oh, you know, I'm going to start a support group and I'm like, just go have lunch with somebody. And, you know, healthcare professionals have a, a big role in understanding what patients may have in common because uh, I met one of my best friends at a blood transfusion who helped me through <laughs> so many things. You know, she right. was a few years older than me. I was a young, I was a teenager. I was 19. She was 23 and cool. And, uh, you know, we just became lifelong friends. So oh, that's uh, it's, it's yeah. really important for healthcare professionals to be a little bit of friend matchmakers. Um, it, and, no, it is. And it is sometimes hard. You know, think about it, and certainly you've thought about it more than I, but chronic kidney disease, nobody sees that, right? Right. So you're tired, you're a little depressed, or you're not feeling well. They can't see it, and they can't understand what it's like to be in your shoes. Exactly. So having somebody that either was in your shoes or still is in your shoes is, is just extremely valuable. It's so it's 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 better than an Ativan, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I could call a friend up all anxious and nervous and feel much better. Exactly. No, I agree hundred um, percent. You know, I wanna circle back to there is a nephrologist shortage. You know, there's a whole healthcare shortage, a nursing shortage, there's a vet shortage, there's a teacher. I mean, there's a shortage of everything. But, you know, what can we what can we do as a community and uh, to help attract more people to this field? Well, I do like what you said earlier. Talking to your nieces and nephews is really not a bad idea and can be more beneficial than you think because you, you never know what seed you sow that leads to that epiphany of where you want to go. Uh, it, it's very important, I think, as a community, we begin to understand how we educate our doctors. And unfortunately, most of our education occurs in the inpatient world for a number of reasons we don't need to go into. But in an inpatient world, what, you, what do you see? You see sick patients, right? Uh, because they're in the hospital for a reason. Uh, 
And some of the most engaging parts of my medical career isn't just taking care of the acutely ill. It's taking care of a chronic patient like you that I get to do art, get to do all the things that you do. I mean, you're more active than most people I know. That's engaging. That's beauty. It's that relationship we talked about before where you become family with your, with your patients. You know, they'd come into clinic and ask me if I was feeling well because I looked tired, right? So, I mean, that's just engaging to watch people improve and keep them healthy. Right. Sometimes in medical school, we don't see that. Sometimes in residency, we don't see that. So it's important, I think, as we continue to assess education of physicians that we do a better job of that. You know, the other simple things are you, you can talk to your congressman about supporting, you know, maybe loan forgiveness for nurses that do nephrology. You never know when, how many phone calls that will take for that to become more of a possibility. Medical school is a little harder, but because uh, nobody is too worried about the doctor after they finish. But, uh, but yeah, it's just paying attention, talking and being positive. Right. I'm total for loan a percentage or a loan forgiveness for people who choose right. fields where there's a shortage. <laughs> you know, really, because it's it's so important. And, and school's gotten a little bit crazy. Come on. The, I mean, yep. somebody was telling me they want to be have a master's in social work, right? It was $45,000 to go to school. Yep. No, you... <laughs> It's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's just, yeah, that's a lot of money and people have to get in debt. So that's a whole other topic. But, you know, we need to advocate and, you know, talk to people who can change this. Um, I'm going to just switch this a little bit because maybe, you know, um, I do the prom every year for, um, uh, and we partner with Notre Dame High School. And a lot of the people that have helped volunteer throughout the years have chose the medical profession because they're being exposed to seeing the people that they potentially would care for. So never underestimate, um, you know, you sharing your story or somebody who's choosing the healthcare field. But if somebody's like a grandson or a son, daughter, niece, nephew, if they wanted to pursue nephrology, they're going to med school, let's say, what, what would they do? It, well, they've got to go through the whole nine yards that we discussed earlier, right? They've got to go through med school, then you've got to do your internal medicine, and then you get into a nephrology program. But before you get to that, you should see somebody that you trust, somebody that could be a mentor to you or, or you know, a role model, if you will, because clearly that makes a huge difference in nephrology. I guarantee you that I worked with some really good nephrologists when I was a resident, and that helped me make that decision. Uh, so as, as a patient or a family member of somebody that's in the field, send them to you, in your cases, Laurie, your doctor, you love your doctor. I'm certain your doctor could talk to somebody in medical school or let them shadow for a week or two and just see what life looks like from a real nephrologist point of view, not just from what they'll see in medical school. But that's, that's what it is. It's finding somebody that you look up to. Mm-hmm. And say, yes, this is something that I'd like to do as when, when, I, when I'm able to. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because, sadly, one of my friends went into acute renal failure. They drank a protein drink, and, you know, they shouldn't have been drinking it, and they're a little older. And you know what happens, right? <laughs> it's not good on sure. the kidneys. Uh, but, um, you know, I actually called my nephrologist, and he got his team in there to help him. It was a Friday night. and. You know, his his spouse said to me, um, they're texting me at 11 o'clock at night. I can't believe they're texting me so late. And I'm like, 
You should be grateful they're texting you. <laughs> exactly. I that. mean, you know, that's how busy they are. And, you know, uh, they're, they're communicating with you. may not be on your schedule, but um, especially with the COVID crisis, I mean, you guys were on fire with workload, right? I mean, it was... It's been crazy because people who have had COVID went into renal failure. And COVID in the early days was certainly a stress for so many reasons, not only increase in patients, but, you know, there were less nurses because they got sick. There were less doctors because they got sick. So, yeah, I I really feel grateful for those that were still working. I was in industry, so I unfortunately or fortunately didn't get that same stressor, but I understood the stress for the people I was talking to on a daily basis for going through, and I'm very grateful for all their hard work. Well, and, you know, patients need to realize that, you know, and not, you know, think it's, you know, all about them. And I told my friend that. I'm like, what? What? You're complaining? I mean, they're, they have roller skates on right now trying to, to meet the demand. And it's really wonderful because they completely reversed the acute kidney failure, and he's fine. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just the magic of a nephrologist. Well, I wanted to wrap up, um, Dr. Krause, uh, you know, are there any programs, grants that help offset the cost of the additional education to become a nephrologist? You could join the Peace Corps, right? And that's, that's not a bad way to do it. Military has, uh, ways to also offset those costs as well. But again, you, you, Either one of those you're granting time, but even in underserved areas, small hospitals sometimes will offer ways to offset medical school with, you know, the the promise that you come back and practice there. And nephrology fits many of those underserved areas. So if you're willing to, you know, serve in an underserved area for a period of time, hopefully for a long time, one would hope that you go there and you love it, you stay. That's obviously their goal as well. But those are the best ways to do it. So there's a number of things you can look into certainly in primary care there, but also in nephrology, you can find things like that. And I knew a couple of uh, fellows that even when I was in school, that that's the way they were getting through it. So, well, you know, um, everybody listening, you know, think of who you could say, hey, become a a kidney professional in some way. And uh, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Krause, for your service and, you know, your dedication to this community. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at our bingo event. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.